Well, look, Donald Trump's number one son. Sorry, Eric and Barron. He took the stand today, and he guess who he is blaming for a fraudulent financial statement. Hint, it's not anybody named Trump. Tonight on Laura Coates Live. So Donald Trump Jr. was the opening act today in the Trump family's quarter of a billion dollar New York courtroom drama. He testified today in that civil fraud case against the former president's namesake business, and it went, well, maybe pretty much how you thought it would go. He testified that he was not involved in the preparation of his father's financial statements at any point in time, and you guessed it, he said, well, blame the accountants. Quote, the accountants worked on it. That's what we pay them for. Now, Don Jr. and his brother Eric are accused of knowingly participating in a scheme to inflate their father's net worth to obtain benefits like, you know, better loans or better insurance policy terms, and then deflating it when it was also convenient to do so. And while her brother was on the stand, the sister, Ivanka Trump, appeal, appealed a judge's ruling ordering her to testify in that civil trial. And remember, she's supposed to testify next week, and she's saying, mm, please no. Eric Trump will testify later on this week as well. And while the former president has quite a few cases in court right now, this is the one he's been in the room for. Remember where he hasn't appeared. Think Eugene Carroll, think other court appearances and other jurisdictions, but this is the one that he's appearing in and is going to be testifying, likely, as early as Monday. So why this one? Why is this the one? Remember, he already left New York, relocated to Florida. Why is this the case he wants to appear in? Well, maybe because it hits him exactly where it hurts. Remember, his reputation, his business, they're really intertwined. And in fact, some would say whether the business led to the presidency or the presidency will then fuel the business, chicken and egg might be coming a bit of a story. And here it all is happening in his hometown of New York City. Joining me now, former Trump attorney Tim Parlatori and litigation attorney A. Scott Bolden. Gentlemen, I'm glad you're here tonight because, look, of all of the, has the Casablanca theme, of all the bars in the world, <laughs> I won't go into the whole thing right now, but I love the movie. He is focused on that particular courtroom. That's where he wants to be. This is where he has taken the greatest umbrage about being accused of fraud but let's just be honest here. And first of all, there's already been a summary judgment motion. The judge has already said the documents are fraudulent. Now it's about how expensive it's going to be for him. When you look at this case, you've been his attorney and counsel in the past. Why do you think this is the case that's so important to him? Well, I mean, this is a case that really goes into how he built his entire reputation. I mean, you know, he came up, you know, from the beginning in real estate in New York and all of that, you know, leading up to the presidency, this puts all of that, you know, into question. Mm. And I think that that's why, you know, this is something that's so important to him because it's, you know, presidency for him, that was four years of his life. This is decades. And it, and it is, you know, it is what, you know, people know Donald Trump as. I mean, POTUS was once on a seal for him, but <laughs> Trump has been on the planes, on the buildings, yeah. that's the name. But the fact that his kids are going to be testifying now. Don Jr. would say for an hour and a half testifying. Yeah. You're going to have Eric Trump, likely Ivanka Trump as well, likely Trump at some point as well in all this. The fact that they're testifying and a man like him who is known to be very, very keyed in on loyalty and what is being said, 
<laughs> is there going to be a conflict with what you actually say? Possibly. This is his financial base. That's the first mm-hmm. thing. And remember that Don Jr. and Eric are defendants in the case. Right. Ivanka was, uh, got out of the case, but they're still trying to get her to testify. The idea that she couldn't testify because she's no longer a citizen in New York doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, if you it, listen you know, to- On that point, it does mm-hmm. not. Right? I mean, you, you don't right. have to be a citizen of the state that's bringing a charge to say, oh, I'm sorry. I don't live there anymore. You can't come. That's yeah. an absurd argument. Yeah, if you've got if you if you got information, or the court thinks you have information that's relevant, probative, and material, then you're probably going to have to take the stand and raise your hand and take the oath. And the arm yeah. of the law could extend to her. Exactly, whether they serve her in Florida or wherever, or wherever she is. Uh, but uh, based on Don's testimony today. He did not seem to be struggling with any conflict because remember his testimony is, I didn't look at these documents. I may have signed these financial documents, but I relied heavily on the lawyers and the accountants because they had intimate knowledge. So he hasn't had to go after his father yet. I do think that Eric and Don, as well as um, uh, Donald Trump Sr., are going to have a problem on cross-examination, or rather direct examination, if the AG starts to ask them about what they know about what Eric did, what Ivanka did, or what their father did, that could put them in a conflict piece. But still, I don't see them invoking the Fifth Amendment because um, they don't want to draw an adverse interest from this judge who's found that these were fraudulent documents. And if they start to lie, remember, this is all about credibility with this judge, he's going to decide whether... Who, how much of that $250 million is going to be allocated to each one, even though they could be jointly and severably liable under New York law? And remember, when you're talking about adverse inference, we're talking lawyerly right now, but yeah. remember, we're talking about, in a civil context, unlike the movies, if you plead the fifth in the civil world, the jury or the fact finder, the time the judge can say, hmm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assume that what you didn't want to say is actually going to really make you sound all the more liable and guilty in these issues. So, adverse to your ad- interests. Adver- adverse adverse to their interests. Look, look at this on a, a, a Wednesday. Look at us doing this whole thing. Is it Wednesday or Thursday? It's Wednesday? Okay, I lost track of time. Test but is t- on Saturday. Whatever it is. Tim, let me ask you this, though. Yeah. Um, what he's saying, as Scott has laid out, is that enough to get him off the hook? If he's saying, look, I, I had these numbers. I had cash flow numbers. I was handing them off to one person. I didn't know what you were ultimately going to use them for. You asked for numbers. I gave them to you. They ended up in documents and disclosures. That disconnect is too much for me to be held liable. Is that convincing? You know, one of the things we have to remember here, it is a civil case. Mm-hmm. And so if this was a criminal case, I would say, absolutely. That's you know something that can be used for reasonable doubt. But in a civil case where you have a much lower burden of proof, preponderance of the evidence, and you also have, you know, knew or should have known, uh, you know, just because you were, you know, willfully blind to something, you just signed it without paying attention to it, doesn't mean you can't be held civilly liable uh, for it Mm. because you did sign something that ultimately wasn't true. That's an important point. So I, I think that because we're talking about a civil case as opposed to criminal, uh, it is less impactful in that case. But I think what's really interesting is what the AG has to rebut their denials of plausibility or denials that they had anything or even knowledge of what gap financing is. What do they have? They Well, Donald Jr. disputes. He says, I know the definition of gap financing, but what the government has would have to put on other evidence and other testimony from other witnesses 
who could say, no, Don Jr. was intimately involved in this. Nothing happened. Donald Trump Sr. was intimately involved with this. And Eric certainly ran these properties. For example, the D.C. property, uh, which is a hotel, which is the Waldorf Astoria now, the D.C. property, Ivanka was intimately involved in those negotiations. Mm -hmm. And Eric was intimately involved in selling their leasehold interest to the current owners, a group of African-American investors. Well, you know, when you look at all this combined, you think about it, I mean, um, some people would look at this and say, as a civil matter, and we, we tend to, as a society, put more emphasis on criminal prosecutions. Right. What can end you up in jail, people may take more seriously. And some are calling this a kind of victimless crime. Like, what's the big deal here? Who's hurt in this case? But if you're going to inflate assets and then deflate them, there's tax benefits that are derived. There are taxes not being paid, and then there's someone being treated very differently. Is there anything to the suggestion that this is simply, and you know this well with uh, Trump's former client, this is all about a political witch hunt. There's no real victim here. It's just you trying to mess you know, with me. It, it is something that, um, whether this is a legitimate case or not, the atmospherics around it certainly lend itself to reinforcing that narrative. In what you know? way? Well, you have an attorney general who campaigned on the idea that she was going to get Trump. Mm -hmm. uh, she goes ahead and brings this case. Uh, you have you know, the judge who is, quite frankly, really playing into Donald Trump's um, you know, game of saying that he is uh, biased. I think that you, know, you think he, he's playing into it. I, I think that the way that he's that he's doing certain things, like certainly the way that he handled that uh, the contempt mm. um, by bringing him on the stand. Yeah, by bringing him on the stand, by having him explain. No, I was talking about the person sitting on the other side of you, not this side of you, and saying, "Well, I, I find him not credible, and I'm going to do it anyway." Mm. I think all that you know certainly gives fuel to the fire. Uh, and feeds into that narrative, you know, that it is something that's a political witch hunt. I think that if they were to go back and kind of take all of the other businesses in New York that aren't run by somebody named Donald Trump and see how many other businesses have done the same thing and how many of them have gotten similar treatment, that's also something that they can use, you know, to show that it's uh, biased. But then again, none of those other businesses did Tish James run for election saying, I'm going to go get them. I hear so, you, but you're also speaking to prosecutorial discretion, right? Thinking, sure. well, here, I, I, I've chosen one case to prosecute. Almost like a, sometimes I'm making this very reductive. A cop sees a lot of people speed by him or her yeah. on the road, I, and they I, choose ones they want to do. Doesn't mean you didn't actually speed, but I want, but I want to go beyond on one point. Cor on correct, this. because you know, a a political prosecution or selective prosecution doesn't necessarily mean that it's not a correct prosecution. It doesn't necessarily mean that it doesn't have facts supporting it. It just means that that prosecutorial discretion mm -hmm. has been exercised against certain people and, and not against others. Well, maybe they'll get to them, but I think my friend Tom is talking more politics than law right now. <laughs> Let me just say this. If you go out, if you violate a court order, you got to get on the stand so that the judge can make findings of fact. And he got on the stand and the judge found him not credible. I mean, he gave him an order and then he walked out of the courtroom and violated that order, attacking his law clerk, which is attack on the administration of justice. So. Details, details, A. Scott. Oh, I'm Bowman. sorry. These are minor, these are minor details. <laughs> for officers no, I, of the court. <laughs> officers of the court, too. Are. I prefer the client to let the lawyer do all the talking. <laughs> yes. well, good right. luck with that. Right. Um, speaking of those who will do the talking, though, I'm really focused on Ivanka because mm -hmm. she's yeah. the one who is saying she's appealing. She does not want to testify. Obviously, her case was dismissed because such limitations had run and she was right. not included in this in, in this um, in this litigation. But what is the likelihood that she will not be able or not be allowed or required to testify? 
I think, I think she gets to testify. I think the, the appeal is going to be denied. This judge is really good at exercising his discretion. And unless he abuses that discretion under New York law, she's going to testify. She's got two concerns. One, she doesn't want to invoke the fifth, even though she's just a witness. She's not a party anymore. And two, the AG probably thinks she has information uh, that's relevant, probative material to their civil prosecution of her father and her brothers, and she doesn't want to give damaging testimony against any one of the three, and she probably has it because they're all very close. It's a family-run business, and she probably does have damaging testimony, which is why she's fighting against testifying so much. Or she has some information that she does not want to divulge, doesn't think she should have to, sure. but I tell you, this is just one of the cases out there, and by the way, mm-hmm. on the horizon to look out for Trump is fighting on the immunity section of the January 6th litigation, saying he doesn't want to have to do the trial at all Mm -hmm. until after the election. So if you can push a lot of these, it might have an impact in the election. They have to be careful because they're under oath, and their testimony, depending on how far it goes on cross or even direct, whether their testimony is going to be used against Donald Trump in his criminal proceedings. That's always a possibility, depending on the level of relevance to this case versus the criminal cases. Tim, are you eager to get back to um, being their attorney right now? <laughs> your, your, your hand's going up, right? Uh, it's, it's a big thing. No, I'm, I'm, <laughs> Let me represent I'm you on this one. <laughs> I'm happy I left when I did. Uh, yeah, I, I th- it was a great experience having been a part of the team. I'm very happy that I made the decision I did when I did. Um, how very diplomatic. We'll end it on that. Tim Parlatore, Scott, Scott Bolden, thank, <laughs> thank you, you both so much. Coming up next, the Cornell student accused of threatening to kill his Jewish peers. He's now behind bars and will likely stay there pending any further prosecution. So how do the students feel about the threats allegedly coming from one of their own? I'll ask them next. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff, and some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Now, as the war in the Middle East really is coming home, how do we and what do we do about the fear that is spreading? Cornell is canceling classes Friday after the arrest of a student, a student, a junior at Cornell, in the wake of threats to kill and injure Jewish students. 
So how do campuses respond when threats come from within their own student body? Joining me now, Sophia Rubinson, managing editor and reporter for the Cornell Daily Sun. Also here with us is Rabbi Ari Weiss, executive director of Cornell Hillel. Thank you so much, both of you, for being here. Let me begin with you, Sophia, because you were actually at the arraignment today. What was Patrick Day's demeanor like inside the courtroom? Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, his demeanor, he was very straight-faced throughout the the hearing. Um, he was looking down primarily. Um, but yeah, he just, he said, yes, your honor to a few questions and he's now being detained. What are students saying today on campus about the fact that, I mean, this is an actual student. There were questions about whether it was somebody coming in, anyone could have posted or I could have had access to the, where the actual posting was. The fact that it's a Cornell student, what have the students been saying about that? Students are extremely disheartened to hear that this is a threat from within our community. Um, the students we spoke to said that campus as a whole felt off and strange today um, as they're trying to grapple with this news. Rabbi Weiss, I mean, thinking about the distrust that must be, you know, fomenting here. We were talking about looking and wondering who, who is speaking this way. It's a student who believes this, who was threatening in this way. I mean, this, was a, this could have been, and this already was a very ugly attack on the community there. I'm wondering how you are counseling students tonight in the wake of this arrest. Uh, so thank you for having me. And, and I'll, I'll just say that, yeah, there's, um, there's some relief that um, the, the, the person who had made these vile threats was, was caught. And, you know, there's really uh, some, some sense that, um, that someone part of the Cornell community made those. Um, there's a lot of sadness. But I, you know, I think at some level the, that these threats didn't arise from nowhere. Um, over the last three weeks, there has been rising anti-Semitism around the country on college mm -hmm. campuses and around and I think there's something about these threats that are are, are manifested in, in part of this 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 culture of, of anti-Semitism. But what I tell students is be proud. The response to anti-Semitism is not to hide Judaism, but it's to stand together, to be proud, to affirm your Jewish identity. This Friday night, we are going back to 104 West where the kosher dining hall is, and we'll have hundreds of students coming together, finding community together, joining together, affirming our tradition, and just standing tall as Jewish students. You know, I, I was talking to Sophia the other day when this was first happening and there had not been an arrest. No one had been identified rabbi. And um, we were learning as well that there were students who were changing their behavior on account of the threats. They were, some were not attending classes, some were um, not wanting to display or otherwise speak about their heritage or their religion anyway. And some were also now traveling in groups from place to place in a kind of a buddy system to try to cope with what's happening. Something like this can have a lasting effect on one's feeling of safety. Are you hearing from students, even in light of the arrest, that they still feel some lingering feelings of being unsafe? You know, I think it's going to be a process. Um, mm. As I was saying before, I think that there there has been a, a process of uh, and a culture of of anti-Semitism. Um, 
you know, at Cornell as in many college campuses. So I think it will take some time for um, for a, a corner to be turned. But um, we've had seen such a great response from Cornell University Police Department to step up and to say, we are here and we support you. And we've seen strong statements from the university president, Martha Pollack. Just today, she announced a number of initiatives to fight anti-Semitism at Cornell through education, which is in line with the work that Cornell Hill has been doing. We bring uh, we bring educators to campus. We're committed to educating Cornell about anti-Semitism, about its history, um, and about ways of fighting anti-Semitism. And I think at the core is to is to fight hate with um, with light, with affirmation, with coming together, and to to stand strong. And it will take it will take weeks, um, it will take months, but I think we'll we'll be able to turn a corner. Well, Sophia, I, I want to know more about what the administration is doing and how are they intending to change or have they already changed some policies or procedures to prevent this from happening again? I assume it has to be on the one hand broad to capture other hateful speech. On the other hand, very specific and nuanced to address what has just happened. Yeah, so um, in light of these events, uh, the university announced today that they will be canceling classes on Friday to have a community day, um, citing that extraordinary stress that students are under. And they're really encouraging students to try to recuperate and try to process the events that have happened recently on our campus. And as the rabbi said, they're increasing initiatives to try to combat anti-Semitism and other forms of hatred on our campus. He mentioned some educational moments as well to be teaching. Is that through a core curriculum? Mean, do you know if it's through a core curriculum? Is it through an elective? Is it through a part of how to add on to the already existing syllabuses that are, ha or syllabi, excuse me, that are happening right now? So the university hasn't released a lot of details yet about exactly what this will look like, but we'll continue to find out details in the coming days, I'm sure. When you look at it, and I know you mentioned, Rabbi, that they're going to be having the community day and Friday classes are canceled, um, you know, having students try to process and, and reflect independently can sometimes be a very difficult task because there's a lot of feelings that are clustering together. What are you intending to do? Is there some directive or moment that you're hoping to achieve in order to have people reflect as a part of a community? So uh, I think that that's a place that Cornell Hillel really steps in. Um, I'm one of the rabbis on our team. We we have two other rabbis, and we have we have 14 staff members, educators. We have um, we have folks who have deep relationships with students. And throughout the last three weeks, um, including this past week, we've been there for students. We've been there supporting students. We've been there to process with students. Right when we heard about the attacks on late Friday afternoon, we were at um, the Center for Jewish Living and 104 West um, within minutes to just be with students and, and sit with students and, and just to show that we are supporting students. So this is just going to be a continuation of the work that we, we do. We have those relationships with students. We are there for them. We're there just to, to listen because I think at the core of pastoral listening um, and pastoral support is just to listen to people and not to minimize what's happening, but to say, we hear you. We hear you. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about what's important. Let's talk about how we could move beyond this. Sophia, you know, obviously we're talking a lot about what's happening specifically at Cornell. The sad reality is that this is happening, maybe not to the same extent or for different in different contexts across campuses all across this country. Are, are you hearing about this happening at other campuses? Are you hearing from friends that you know as well about what's happening there too? 
We're definitely hearing from a lot of other um, peer newspapers, uh, specifically at The Sun, about some, um, not to the same extent um, that's happening here, but, you know, there was recent events at Columbia University. Um, and just as a whole, I mean, when Governor Kathy Hochul spoke at the Center for Jewish Living on Monday, um, she spoke about how anti-Semitism is on the rise across college campuses. It's not unique to Cornell. So this is definitely a trend that we're seeing. We're also hearing that I mean, Christopher Ray, the FBI director, was speaking about the increase by hundreds of percentage points of incidents of anti-Semitism, also increases in Islamophobia as well, and thinking about this more broadly. Um, is, is there, we heard about the pure newspapers, but Rabbi, are you having coordinated conversations with other pastoral entities at different universities and college settings? Because I would assume that there needs to be some, in some respect, a, a blueprint or lessons that could be learned, as unfortunate as that sounds. Yeah, so we're very fortunate that we're an affiliate of, of Hillel International, and we have um, we're part of a network of hundreds of Hillels around the country and around the world. And we're in regular contact with them to learn best practices, to share, uh, and to really support each other. Sophia Rubinson, Rabbi Ari Weiss, thank you so much for bringing us the information, and hopefully things will get better. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Look, civilians, they're finally allowed to leave Gaza, but that doesn't mean that everyone's gone. Far from it. Of the trapped, only hundreds have been able to leave. I'll talk with families from Texas who have loved ones who are still stuck there after this. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Now, I want you to try to imagine what this is like. You are trapped in a war zone. You are surrounded by thousands, literally thousands of people who are just as desperate as you to get out. Desperate to escape, to protect their families. We're talking children that are there. You have bombs that are falling from the sky. You've got ground troops that are advancing. And you get the word from the State Department to head to the border. You know how that word comes down? Some list that's posted daily. That's, that's how you find out if you're gonna be able to get out. And mind you, not everyone's name is on that list, and even only a few hundred people who've been on that list have even made it through. Can you, can you try to imagine that fear, the desperation? Imagine what that would feel like and what you would try to do. Well, some Americans did make it out today in the first wave of foreign nationals to be evacuated. Like 71-year-old Ramona Okamura, a U.S. citizen, a prosthetics expert who was making prosthetics for Gazan children. We are so happy again that she was one of the five that could leave, but we also hold in our in our hearts a sorrow of the, the rest of the people that are, remain stranded and hope they can be evacuated safely. The rest, and we're talking about a huge number of people, and there are so, still many who are desperately hoping to get out. Now, the Department, they would not give details on the extent of the numbers. 
Earlier tonight, I spoke with a Texas woman, Haifa Kaoud, whose husband, Hisham, is trapped in Gaza. Now, Hisham traveled to Gaza along with his two brothers and his nephew on September 27, just about a week before the start of the war. Now, they had planned only to spend about two weeks there on vacation. Now, listen to the nightmare of not finding her loved one's name on this all-important list that says you get to leave. He went there, and when he came back from there, he said, they didn't allow me to get in, and they said, your name not on the list, mm. and just wait till your name is there. So just almost an hour ago, I kept waiting the whole day for the list. They uploaded the list on their website. I checked all names. It has hundreds of names, but it hasn't. Mm. It has two of his brothers, the elder one, but not he and the other brother and the nephew. In his talks with you and texting and trying to communicate, is he in danger? Uh, yes, because the bombing, you know, there, it's a small area and there is no safe area there. I was going to mm. say, Haifa, I, it's hard, um, even when I'm hearing you talk about this, it's hard for me, obviously, I'm a mother as well. I've got a nine-year-old, I've got a 10-year-old, and I'm watching a young girl with you right now. And you and I are talking about how scary it is for your husband. Um, how is your daughter understanding or holding up through all of this? What are you, what are you telling her? She know now he's stuck there and she thinks about him. Like in the night, she will ask me every day when he's coming back because usually he go with her to her bed, he read a story to her and then always I'm busy with house things and he's the one who will take care of it. Well, Haifa, Kaud, we will be thinking of you and your family. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. And I'm so sorry that you're forced to search that list waiting for your loved one to come home. Thank you for joining us tonight. Joining me now, Dory Roberts, one of the loved ones enduring the agonizing wait for some word. Five of his family members were taken by Hamas. Five. His aunt, who was later found deceased along the Gaza border, her longtime partner, his cousin, and her two little daughters. Dory, thank you for being here this evening. I mean, we have been watching this, and, and you have been struggling with watching from afar, thinking about what's happening to your loved ones compared to what your life is like here in the United States. Can you just describe what this has been like for you? Well, first of all, thank you, Laura, for having me on your show. It's been almost three weeks, and... It has been very, very hard time for me and my family. We've been out there looking for any clues, for any sign of life. As you mentioned in the intro that my aunt passed away and we were buried her next to my mom's grave, uh, temporary burial. Uh, that, that was the location of when I last saw her um, in that funeral three months ago uh, by my mom's grave. And... Uh, it's been really rough time since then. We're really trying to hold our family and our loved ones together. We're trying to find any signs of life. There's another sixth member of the family, uh, my aunt, 
previous marriage adopted son that he was pronounced kidnapped and then missing and then back to kidnap. We just don't know what happened to him. His name is uh, uh, Ravid Katz. He's 51 years old. And he was part of the emergency response team that uh, went to try to defend the community, the kibbutz mm. they were in. Uh, so we don't know what happens to him. There is no news. There is a, a long uh, uh, count of bodies there still need to be identified uh, because the horrific uh, and, and action of the Hamas terrorists that butchered them and left nothing to identify them. So either that way or another, uh, we hope we, we hopefully to find some kind of news about him. So it's been really a hard time for me and my family to deal with that every single day. Yeah. And then going to a funeral, and then coming back, we hold in our kids that you mentioned you have kids. So do I. And, and, and so those little girls are in, held in captive still with their mom. Um, and then, their their grandma uh, on the way to Gaza Strip uh, in front of their eyes and yeah it's it just it's horrifying it's really mm-hmm. leading to many sleepless nights and nightmares and and the feeling of helplessness feeling of not knowing what's next or when things gonna happen it's it's really hard on a lasso Dory I mean on that point especially I mean this the just waiting for the information that is not coming. We do see that there have been some releases of hostages. Only four have been released and and one also rescued. Given that, how do you hold on to hope that there will be continued negotiations and of course their return? I think it's a great question, Laura. It's actually uh, the same way that the people who are waiting to get out of Gaza Strip through the Rafa into Egypt and going back home and they're trying to wait for their name to appear in the list. We're trying to do the same on our side, hoping for the negotiation um, to lead to somewhere. And hopefully sooner than later, we're going to be able to find what happens or any signs of life. Sometimes we see videos uh, published by the Hamas of the uh, hostages, and that gives us some hope that they're held in somewhat good conditions and taking care for their health and needs. But we just don't know where, where they're about. And, we're hoping that the other players in the region, uh, like Germany, England, France, whoever, Egypt and Jordan, will help to keep the negotiation alive and keep uh, hope for our relatives down in Gaza to come back home to our family and our loved ones. And that's a, a daily struggle. Sometimes it's an hour by hour struggle, um, but we have to keep going. We have to be strong for each other in times like that. And um, like I said, it's it's really up to the negotiation teams out there to make progress. Dory, when hope is what you have, you just got to cling to it with both hands. Thank you so much for being here with us tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. One of the most polarizing and perhaps legendary figures in college sports has passed away. We'll remember Coach Bobby Knight next. Hall of Fame basketball coach Bobby Knight has died at the age of 83. Now, he won three national championships with Indiana. Former Duke University coach Mike Krzyzewski, known as Coach K, said, quote, 
we lost one of the greatest coaches in the history of the basketball today. A basketball say clearly he was one of a kind. Coach Knight recruited me, mentored me, and had a profound impact on my career and in my life. CNN sports analyst Christine Brennan joins me now. Christine, I can't think of anyone better than you who has interviewed him multiple times, has watched the span of his career to be here with me on set today, and I appreciate that so much. You know, he was known as very outspoken, is to say. He was mm-hmm. a controversial figure as well, also mm-hmm. beloved. Tell me about that tension. Yeah, at Indiana, you know, bringing those three national championships mm-hmm. in men's basketball and just being an iconic leader. I'm sure there, you know, people are, are very sad today. Those who cheered for the Indiana Hoosiers, Texas Tech. He had an amazing career, Olympic gold medal in 84 at the Olympics. He coached that team. Mm-hmm. I covered that team. I covered him then. And so there are many who just love him. And the players who played for him also, you know, obviously praise him and um, say that he changed the, their lives. Um, there's that side. And the other side is the man who I could think of five or six things alone that I've read or remembered over the last couple of hours, Laura, uh, that would have been fireable uh, at any job in the country today and probably even in the last five years. And that includes him, of course, choking on on tape, choking one of his players in 2000 uh, or 97. 97. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then uh, actually grabbing a kid on campus who was um, who was kind of, uh, you know, going after him in 2000, which led to his firing at Indiana. And in an interview with Connie Chung in 1988, uh, said, if rape is inevitable, relax and enjoy it. That is what Bobby Knight said about rape. So you think about him, and he really was a fixture and an icon of a generation that is no longer around. And I think many people listening to this might say, thank goodness that he could survive and say these things and do these things, put tampons in players' lockers because they played like a girl, you know, to be critical of them. All of these things that are egregious that were acceptable in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, that would be, of course, completely unacceptable today, especially, Laura, as we look out for the mental health of athletes, as we've talked about, you and I, Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka and Michael Phelps and all those, and, of course, the abuse of athletes. Because at at his core, uh, Bobby Knight was an abuser of young people, as we then saw with him trying to choke, or actually, you know, going after one player, choking a player with his hands around his neck. So, you know, that that would not obviously be acceptable in our society today. And I think that, of course, that is absolutely correct, that it should not be acceptable in our society today. I mean, the characteristic of an abuser of, of players is one that many would take some umbrage to, given and they, they will remember, frankly, the wins. They will remember him as a Indiana as a powerhouse. They'll remember all of those things and, and look, look and listen to what you've just said and say, how dare, why, you, why, how dare you? Why aren't you? Why aren't you not focusing on the things that he did well in his passing? Because we're talking about a man who was a public figure who died, and so he is newsworthy as, in death as he was uh, as he lived his life. He was fired by Indiana. That is a fact. That is a part of his bio, Laura, of course. Uh, as I started out, I, of course, praised him and t- talked about how much he's loved by his players. Mm-hmm. All right, I didn't necessarily praise him, but the, you know, talked about the players who looked at, to him as they shaped him. Uh, they shaped every, he shaped every one of them, and they look at them as the man that they are now because of Bobby Knight. That is notable and should be remembered. But the facts are the facts. And um, again, I think it's really interesting to look at him in the time frame that he, he lived 
and thrived and was an iconic figure. I cheered for his teams. That 1975-76 Indiana men's basketball team, it is the last undefeated men's Division I basketball team to this day. That was an iconic team that a, a kid like me in, in Toledo, Ohio, could cheer for. Absolutely. My siblings went to IU. They mm -hmm. loved Bobby Knight. But they also realized it was time for him to go. And again, looking at him through the prism and the lens now of, of 2023, some of these things are incredibly egregious. And I'm sure many people hearing it for the first time are kind of like, how did this man even thrive and get the job that he did? So again, a mixed bag and a very controversial and contradictory uh, image of a man who we've lost today and is certainly worthy of discussion, but clearly uh, there are two sides to this story. Eyes wide open, Christine Brennan, thank you for being, bringing us all of that information. I appreciate it. Sure. There are also text messages that have been released tonight from an army reservist reporting how concerned he was about the main shooter. I'm gonna show you those text messages after this. There are newly released text messages revealing the extent of concern over the main mass shooter's state of mind before the rampage that he went on in Lewiston, Maine, killing 18 people. The texts were from an Army reservist saying that he believed that Robert Card was, quote, messed up in the head, unquote, and feared that he could, and I'm quoting again, snap and do a mass shooting. This evening, we've learned that President Biden and the First Lady plan to travel to Lewiston on Friday to pay their respects to families affected by the tragedy. And tonight, people in the Winthrop community held a candlelight vigil to remember 14-year-old Aaron Young. Aaron and his father, Bill, were among those killed at the bowling alley. I want to thank you all for watching. Our live coverage continues after a short break. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.